When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Decoder Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash DSM Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. When I was younger, I had this idea that um, that somebody was going to come save me at some point. Um, whether it was in my marriage or during my divorce, I just, I felt like someone will intervene. And, um, and yeah, that, that didn't happen. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Sarah Short was 18 years old when she and her then-boyfriend found out she was pregnant. I had started going to college, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, and so... You know, my first impulse was, okay, I'm going to look into adoption. Sarah went to her first prenatal checkup, and that got her worried about how she was going to pay her medical bills. I didn't understand how health insurance worked. I mean, as far as I know, I think I walked into the hospital and asked them, where do I go if I'm having a baby? Hmm. And... um But then they told me, oh, this health insurance that you have through your dad won't cover OB-type services. And I asked them, um, you know, is there something in place for poor people? Can I set up a payment plan? And they just said, no, no. And so at that point, I really didn't know what to do, and I just didn't go back to the doctor. Sarah eventually decided to keep the baby. But she didn't have another doctor's appointment until she was seven months into her pregnancy. She'd tried to enroll in Medicaid, but she needed to track down a copy of her birth certificate. Hers had gotten lost. By the time I got it, I'd already had my daughter, and they told me that there was nothing they can do and it wouldn't be covered. Do you remember when the bill came in the mail? Uh, Yeah, I remember these bills started showing up, anesthesia and the hospital stay and the doctor, and I just laughed. I was like, I can't pay this. I can't write a check for thousands of dollars. And so I kind of just didn't know what to do, and I just threw them away. And then they turned red, and they kept showing up. Um, 
you know, then I start getting calls and I stop answering my phone if it's not a number that I recognize. This was back in 2007. And some of the choices Sarah made over the next decade deeply shaped her relationship with her body, money, debt, and her confidence. We talked first for a 2017 episode, and again just a few weeks ago, about what's happened since then, including getting divorced and becoming a single mom. I was talking to um, to one of my friends about this uh this upcoming interview with you and saying how so many things have happened in the past uh, decade since my surrogacy. And I feel like they're all important, but I don't know how to kind of bring them together. And he was like, well, they all have to do with you doing the best for your kids. You'll hear more about that later in this episode. When Sarah first got pregnant, she was living in Oregon. She grew up in a small farming community there. Sarah was homeschooled, in part, she says, because the local schools weren't great and because her family was really religious. It was through church that Sarah met her boyfriend when she was 14 and where they were taught about abstinence and told to wait until marriage to have sex. And then it didn't really work out, and I wasn't too upset about it. Um, (laughs) I think probably, you know, the the big hole in it was just the um, education about contraception. I always thought to myself uh, with my really pro-life upbringing that the pill or the morning after pill was the same as abortion. So I was more concerned about not being on birth control than I was about having sex. (laughs) They ended up having a small church wedding when she was eight months pregnant. After their baby was born, her husband hopped from farm job to farm job while Sarah stayed home with their daughter. I had a difficult time finding daycare, and so I was like, okay, I guess I'm just going to stay home with this baby, and I'm going to stop school, and I'm going to stop working, and that's going to be my role. Did it feel financially stable? Um, You know, it's funny to look back on it now because we made so little money, <laughs> but it felt like a lot of money to teenagers. Yeah. Now I can't imagine living off of the income that we did at the time. They still owed a lot of money to the hospital where Sarah gave birth. She estimates that it was about $10,000 before it went into collections. And then it started accruing interest and fees. Then the recession hit. Work dried up for Sarah's husband. But she was able to find a job at a credit union. It was like the first real job that I had had. I made uh, $1,200 a month working full-time. And at the time, that felt like, you know, a nice income to me and, you know, felt like a professional job. And um, about that time, I got a call from the hospital where I delivered, and they said, "Um, we've changed our policies and we've revisited your bill and we want to set up a payment plan with you. And I said, you know, this is amazing timing. I just got this great job. And so call me when I get my first paycheck and we'll figure something out. And so I made a, a what was a pretty significant payment for, you know, people who weren't making a ton of money. I think it was like $350 a month or something like that on these bills. Sarah and her husband had a second child in 2010. And this time the birth was covered by Medicaid. But the old debt haunted her. 
she worried about it showing up on her credit report and holding her family back. I felt like we were never going to own a home. You know, I, I was still learning how to be a grown-up, having all that debt that I just, when I would think about how much it was and what it would take to pay it off and how long it would take, I would just get so overwhelmed and I would be like, we're never going to be able to get out from under this. And it felt like it was all my fault. I I mean, even looking back on it, I... I know some things that I could have done now, and that was why, you know, I started looking at ways that I could pay this off myself. It felt like I was beholden to my husband to pay these bills that were really my responsibility. And you felt like that because you had had the baby, even though it was your child together? I felt like I had been... At the time, I didn't know what I could have done differently. You hear about these people who are taking advantage of the system. I was like, how come I didn't take advantage of the system? What system was there <laughs> for me to take advantage of? Why didn't anyone tell me how to take advantage of the system? <laughs> that's, that's how it felt to me. I was oh. like, you know, I know lots of people who had babies and, you know, were living at the poverty line. And somehow it got taken care of. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do. Sarah was intent on paying off this debt. And with two kids at home, she needed to bring in extra money without also having to pay for childcare. So she started looking into selling her eggs. But a fertility clinic told her she wasn't a great candidate. People want tall blondes. So you're, you're not tall and blonde? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm short and brunette. <laughs> and, and that was a disqualifier for, for selling your eggs? You know, it's they do headhunt at Ivy League schools, and they're looking for girls who are 20 years old and athletic and tall and blonde. And that is, you know, that's that's what they want for the most part. Did you feel insulted? Oh, I don't know. I think, you know, it was... Uh, kind of self-fulfilling. Doesn't everybody feel that way about themselves that, oh, nobody wants my eggs? (laughs) So, you know, I I guess ultimately I wasn't really surprised. Did it feel like a, like, like a class judgment? Maybe. Um, You know, I feel more like if you're gonna take that leap and get somebody else's eggs because you can't have your own genetic material that you probably would want, you know, the best eggs that you can find. If I have to settle, then I'm going to get... I'm going to settle for Heidi Klum with a Harvard degree. (laughs) (laughs) But the clinic had another option for Sarah, to become a surrogate and carry a baby for someone else. You know, I was kind of like, that sounds crazy. That sounds like a lot. I don't think I can handle that emotionally. But all the while, I'm still going, how are we going to pay these hospital bills? Sarah eventually matched with a lesbian couple. They were executives at Microsoft at the time. And while they were more financially secure than Sarah was, she told me she considered them self-made, and she felt a connection with them. But once she was pregnant, there were parts of surrogacy that felt really weird. I think it felt um, like a little bit too intimate 
I was really conscious of the fact that these were not my babies. And huh. so it always felt a little bit like they were they were kind of too close to me. Like an invasion of privacy. Well, yeah, kind of like, um, I mean, my husband could probably speak to this too, like when we're laying in bed and the babies are kicking him, and it's just kind of a really strange sensation to be like, these aren't our babies. And, um, you know, we talked a lot about how it had all the downsides that come with being pregnant, all the hormonal things and health issues, but it didn't have any of the positives. As you became more visibly pregnant, what would your conversations be like with strangers? Um, That's probably the thing that I have the hardest time with. I've talked to other surrogates about this, and they're kind of like, I don't know what you're talking about. But when I was in the checkout at the grocery store and the clerk would start asking me about my pregnancy, it made me so angry and frustrated and uncomfortable because I would keep trying to shut it down and they would keep asking. And, um, you know, there's the really basic ones like, when are you due and boy or girl that people would ask. But then it was really hard to shut down because I would be like, well, it's a boy and a girl. And then they're like, oh my gosh, twins. We need to talk about this for 20 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Would you ever say, I'm actually a surrogate? Um, I tried not to because that made the conversation longer. <laughs> and I, it, it was always like at the grocery store where I don't want to hold up the line. I just want to get out. Sarah eventually gave birth to the twins, and she was also paid for the breast milk she produced afterward. In total, it all came to around $40,000 over two years. She used part of that money to pay off her medical debt. The rest went to a down payment on a house. That's where she was living at the end of our first conversation for the episode that came out in 2017. Later that year, her marriage ended. Sarah's 35 now, still living in Oregon, and has sole custody of her two kids, who are now 12 and 16. My husband uh, turned out to be a really bad guy who was uh, putting me down and telling me what kind of person I was behind the scenes, um, really shaped how I thought about myself and how I thought about my marriage. And um, so, yeah, I'm just, I'm living a very different life than I was last time we talked. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. That sounds like a difficult process. Um, When we talked last One of the things you were really proud of was having used some of the money you earned as a surrogate on a down payment on a house. Um, What happened to that house? Uh, Me and my ex-husband had uh, what kind of looked like on the outside a really amicable divorce. We were both the children of divorce, and we didn't want to get lawyers involved and go to court. And um, I was concerned about how I was going to manage it financially, too. And so um, we ultimately just completed the divorce paperwork together and went and turned it in. But when it came down to uh, specifics, there were just certain things that would really just set him off. The house was one, and he kind of told me, you know, take whatever you want from the house, furniture-wise and things like that. But then I would kind of start to pack some things, and he would just hit the roof. And so um, 
I basically left my house and um, almost everything that I owned and left that marriage without any assets. Um, Was it hard to leave the house? I think what's hardest for me right now is the fact that um, I'm in my mid-30s and I have no assets. Um, And especially the fact that I went through this surrogacy and um, sacrificed a lot with my body um, and didn't come away with anything financially from it has been really hard. We bought that house at a really good time. And um, I looked at the price of it recently, and it's more than doubled in value from when we bought it. And I don't think about it very much because it, it makes me really emotional. Coming up, Sarah and I talk more about money and how leaving her marriage has made her less afraid. I heard somebody say the other day that in your 30s, you live out your 13-year-old dreams, but without fear. And um, and I keep thinking about that because I definitely think that I am more truly myself right now than I ever have been in my life. If Sarah's got you thinking about how you started your financial life and all the decisions that cascaded from there, let me urge you to take that a step further and consider your experiences with inheritance. We are collecting stories about money transfers between generations during this time when a historic transfer of wealth is underway in America as the very resourced boomers come to the end of their lives And some in the younger generations are seeing their lives transformed by inheritance. We want to hear your stories of inheritance, especially if it's something happening in your life right now. Whether it's large or small, tell us what you've noticed about getting an inheritance. We want to know whether you've inherited money or whether you've inherited debt. How is it affecting your close relationships? Was this something you saw coming that you talked about in your family ahead of time? Or was it a surprise? And was your inheritance distributed equally among family members? And if not, how are all of you making sense of those decisions? Finally, what conversations do you wish you could have about your inheritance with the person who's gone? Record a voice memo with your story about inheritance and send it to us at debtsexmoney at wnyc.org. And I want to remind you that if you're in the Bay Area or if you're a fan of comedian Maria Bamford, I'm interviewing her on stage in San Francisco on Saturday, October 14th as part of City Arts and Lectures. You can get tickets to join us in person or to watch remotely. There's a link in our show notes or at cityarts.net. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts.
This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After getting divorced, Sarah Short and her two kids had to downsize to cut expenses. They moved out of the house she bought with the money from surrogacy, and she doesn't receive child support. Her ex isn't present in their lives. It's taken some adjustments. But she says she feels a lot less panicked now about debt than she did when she was a new mom. I have the ability to earn money. And I'm scrappy, obviously. <laughs> so um, that's kind of part of my, my new mindset, is that um, I'm, I'm capable of doing this. When you think back on the, the decisions that you made to deal with the debt that, you had, that you'd accumulated that was medical debt back then, um, do you think about debt in a different way? now in your mid-30s? I mean, I think about all of these things really differently. I didn't have uh, any support kind of guiding me through things like medical debt. And um, now having worked in a hospital, I realized that I could have talked to them. I probably could have gotten a large part of it forgiven. Um, I could have made payments and... Another thing is um, the amount of money that I owed doesn't feel impossible anymore. It's still significant, and it's not money that I could just um, pull out of nowhere now. But um, it just kind of feels like it's part of all of our lives, and we just we just pay on it, and we're just like, it's fine, everything's fine. <laughs> Before Sarah got divorced, she worked in admissions at a local hospital. She went back to school in 2017, the same year her marriage ended, and got a degree in public health management in the spring of 2020. Sarah has some student loan debt, but she hasn't had to start making payments yet because of the pause on federal student loans. And that time gave her some room to reconsider her career plans. I had kind of gotten this degree thinking that I was going to go back to working in a hospital. You know, it had been three or four years. I'm applying for jobs and they're saying, oh, do you use this new computer program? Well, you know, we're not going to hire you. And I mean, I was applying for the same job that I did before. But yeah, I was I was <laughs> no longer qualified to do the job that I had done before. And then I was kind of casting around, applying for jobs that I was just absolutely perfect for and not even getting an interview. Um, and I was just getting really frustrated and kind of disillusioned and uh, feeling like I'm never going to be able to support myself. I'm never going to be able to dig my way out of my debt. And um, so right around that time, my boyfriend at the time was working in disability group homes, and he kept talking to me about the issues around meals and nutrition in these homes. So these are vulnerable populations. A lot of times they have special dietary needs, and they were getting macaroni and cheese and frozen pizza every single night because the staff just didn't know how to cook. Then um, on top of all that, my, my mom, who is an entrepreneur, sent me a book that kind of talked about how starting your own business is a really viable path to wealth, that, um, you know, working 
it's it's difficult to work your way up and make very much money and you're always going to make less than the people above you and there's things like investing getting lucky basically but starting a business is um is a pretty solid way to uh to get money and i've had so many jobs just kind of fall apart underneath me um situations where there's changes in management or changes in the computer systems or um, just really toxic people or we're laying people off. But I guess because I've always, um, I've always had some kind of side hustle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It made me realize that I'm always capable of making money somehow. Hmm. What was the book called? Do you remember? Yes, um, it's We Should All Be Millionaires by Rachel Rogers. I mean, what's so interesting to me is it totally flips uh, how I think about, like, leaving a kind of wage-earning job and starting your own business. I think of that as, like, stepping out of the scaffolding of a system where you have a slot um, and, and going into, like, outer space where there's no structure because you're just on your own. And this flips it in that, like, making you see when you're in this slot of wage earning work on a job um, that there's all this opportunity that you could be not seizing. Yeah, 1000%. I feel like we were all raised that um, getting a job and staying at that job is uh, the path to success. And it just kind of made me realize that working for somebody else is not reliable. Sarah developed a business plan for preparing and selling nutritious meal kits to local disability group homes, and she came up with a name, Wholesome Beginnings. One of the big things uh, that Rachel Rogers talks about in her book is, um, you know, making this a reality for yourself, um, going out and telling everybody, I have started this business, this is what it is. And so... uh, that was big for me. I'm kind of I'm kind of private because I'm always afraid of things falling apart and then um, having to say, "Yeah, I changed again." And then um, I had to kind of from there hit the streets and try to get clients. I made up business cards and dropped off a card at um, every disability group home company in the area. And it was really scary for me because I'm really socially anxious and I would have panic attacks sometimes before I went out and then I would just get over it and I would go do it. And um, and yeah, it was a big push for me, but I knew that this was an idea that um, I really wanted to exist in the world. Um, has running this business changed the way you and your family eat? Yes, but probably not in a good way. Um <laughs> So one of the reasons this business is my zone of genius is I love meal planning, menu planning, um, grocery shopping. I know the prices of everything at every grocery store. Having dinner with my kids every night was a non-negotiable, and I had all my recipes planned out. I mean, this is actually kind of crazy and embarrassing to talk about, but I had them like color coded for, um, you know, how perishable the ingredients were Mm -hmm. so that I got everything kind of cycled through and things like that. Um, I don't do that anymore because I'm completely buried in this business that I'm building. So dinner has gotten a lot more chaotic and probably more typical to what 
dinner time looks like for a lot of families. I'm trying to get my kids more involved with uh, helping me cook, but they're kind of like baby birds. They won't eat unless I chew it up and spit it in their mouth. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it's kind of all over the place now. And I admittedly also buy meal kits um, because I love them and they're great and I don't have to do the planning do you have any interest in being pregnant again? Um, so I, uh, I can't get pregnant anymore. Uh, after I found out I couldn't do the surrogacy, um, I had my uh, tubes removed. Mm-hmm. I was going back to college and going through my divorce, and I felt like this would be a really terrible time to get pregnant. Um, so there were a lot of things on my mind at that point. Wow. That sounds like a very busy time emotionally, Sarah. That's a lot. Yes, but I mean, everything from my um, my sterilization surgery to living on my own to starting my own business, this is all me having control over my own life and feels really good and, and stable and safe. Knowing what you know now about having to start over, um, after your divorce and not being able to carry with you the investments that you were able to make financially because of your surrogacy. Um, Do you look back on your decision to be a surrogate um, with any sort of regret? How do you think about it? I definitely don't have any regret because I helped build a family. I'm very, very happy that... um, the parents that I was a surrogate for have these two children that just really fulfilled their dreams. They, they had wanted children for so long and then, um, they really seemed complete. Um, so that's really special to me. When you think about the time where you were trying to, um, you described like feeling like your confidence was undermined a lot in your marriage um, and coming to the decision that you needed to leave. When, do do you remember, like, was there, how did you make that decision? The reason I ask is because I think when we're in those times of life, when we're in unhealthy emotional environments where we don't feel supported, we don't feel confident, we don't feel safe, Um, it can feel difficult to realize you do have agency. Um, Like, what happened that made you believe that you could do that? Honestly, my husband at the time brought up divorce, and things had, you know, been going downhill for a long time, and one of my biggest regrets is not leaving sooner. I also understand that. (laughs) For someone who has an instinct to take care and manage and cope, um, sometimes it can take an external opening. um, And you took it. Yeah. I mean, I think when I was younger, I had this idea that that somebody was going to come save me at some point. Um, Whether it was in my marriage or during my divorce, I just, I felt like someone will intervene. And, um, and yeah, that, that didn't happen, but I'm glad that I now have agency over myself. 
When you look back at your 18-year-old self, who was pregnant for the first time with your oldest, um, and all that that sort of the series of major decisions that that led from there, um, anything you wish you'd known then or wish you could tell yourself, your past self? Um, I remember when I first got pregnant and I was 18 and I, um, I told um, a family member and they, um, I, I had, I had told them, you know, I have, I found an apartment and I have a job and um, I may have been going to school at that point too. And, and I had found a babysitter. And so I had everything all lined out and they were like, you're never going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to afford to do this. So um, the, the realization that I can do this on my own has been incredibly freeing. And that's what I wish that I had known when I was younger. That's Sarah Short in Oregon. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Katie Bishop produced our original episode with Sarah, and this update was produced by Afi Yellow Duke. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, Amy Pearl, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. You can email us anytime at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org and subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we share listener stories and writing from me and the team that you won't find anywhere else. Sign up at the link in our show notes or at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. Thank you to Leal Uberaga Rogers in Boise, Idaho, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Leal and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Sarah is dating someone right now. They met online, and her boyfriend also has kids of his own. She told me before they got together, she happened to meet a lot of other divorced men on the apps. I felt like I was always like the the next person they dated like they had gotten a divorce and then they had had like a long-term rebound relationship and then and then they date me and then they'll meet somebody and they'll get married (laughs) (laughs) that sounds like the fun girlfriend right there (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's definitely me i'm anna sale and this is death sex and money from wnyc 